You're listening to In Situ Science, where we get to meet scientists and hear stories of how discoveries are made. I'm James O'Henlon, and this episode we get to meet Dr. Chris Reed from the Australian Museum, who tells us it's impossible to know everything there is to know about beetles, but he's going to try anyway. A research scientist from the Australian Museum Research Institute is an entomologist and an expert on pretty much everything there is to know about beetles. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Chris Reed. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joe. You're a research scientist at the Research Institute here. What sort of stuff are you researching around at the moment? Well, uh, as you said, um, you, you actually introduced me slightly wrongly because I can't possibly be an expert on all beetles. <laughs> Well, as close as we're going to get. There's <laughs> just too many beetles. Yes. Uh, so uh, what you find is uh, certainly in the wider world, most beetle experts are actually experts on one particular group. Yeah. So I'm my research is focused on leaf beetles. Okay. And, and there's about 3,000 different kinds of those in Australia. Mm-hmm. There's about 42,000 different kinds of them worldwide, and um, they fit on plants, so I also need a bit of expertise on plants. Yeah. Sure, so why are, they, why are they called leaf beetles? They fit on plants, okay. yeah, fit on leaves, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess on this topic of, sort of beetle diversity, I think one of my favourite little beetle anecdotes is this story of <coughs> J.B.S. Haldane, who yeah. was yeah. asked a bit of a loaded question about his thoughts on, on what yeah. he can infer about the creator. Yeah, well, what he's referring to is um, what he said was, or what he's supposed to have said is, uh, God was inordinately fond of beetles. Yes. But that was because uh, at that time, certainly, there were more species of beetles than anything else. And that seems to be holding true. Yeah. Uh, beetles are a quintessential successful group in yeah. evolutionary terms. Well, what is it about this beetle body plan you think that makes them so successful? Being able to control their own microenvironment. I think it's it's having the modified wing cases mm-hmm. that uh, enclose a cavity between the upper wings and the abdomen that uh, in into which their air breathing apparatus faces. Mm-hmm. So they're controlling both uh, gaseous exchange and humidity. Right. So and that, just, uh, that gives them an edge in, in dry areas and also allows them to go into water. So insects, they have four wings, so two fore yeah. wings, two hind wings. Yeah. And you're saying these pair of four wings are hardened sort of yes. shield. they become a protective shield. It also means that uh, they protect the hind wings so that beetles can um, get get ahead a bit by living longer. Mm. Um, if they protect the forewings, the forewings don't fray so quickly. Many, yeah, yeah. many, many of the flying insects you'll see around, butterflies and so on, only have a, an average adult lifespan of a week or two yeah, weeks. Yeah. But beetles are, um, some beetles certainly can uh, survive three or four years yeah. as adults. Because it's right, because when you see, if you ever see a beetle flying, they sort of have their hind wings folded up with this lovely little origami pattern underneath. Yeah. There. Yeah. These are the elytra, right? Is that the right word? Uh, the uh, the forewings or the yeah. hardened elytra, yeah, yeah. Wing, wing covers. Yeah. So if a person is looking through their backyard and they find what they think is a beetle, what's a good rule of thumb to tell them so they know they're looking at a beetle? Oh, well, rule of thumb is a good phrase because I, I always tell people to do the squish test. Uh, <laughs> uh, usually if you can squish it easily, it's not a beetle. Okay. <laughs> um, there are some exceptions, of course. Yeah. 
the other the, the key feature most people get confused between bugs and beetles and yeah. and they're particularly confused with uh, shield bugs that are common around certainly around Sydney yeah. uh, and often very brightly colored so people think bright colors is beetle um, but bugs all have sucking mouth parts and they're very obvious visible uh, yeah. straw like mouth parts underneath the head whereas beetles are virtually entirely mandibulate that is they have opposed mm-hmm. uh, jaws I think lots of people might think bug is just a generic word for insects. Yes, whereas uh, that, that works for the lay person, but for us a bug, a bug is a s- special group of insects and yeah. a beetle is another group. Yeah. All right, so our bugs are things like our what, cicadas and leafhoppers. C- cicadas, aphids, leafhoppers. Yeah, so getting back to the, these leaf beetles, so these are all Australian, aren't they? Well, as I said, there's 3,000 species in Australia, mm-hmm. so... Um, that's that's enough for one lifetime. I'm not actually <laughs> describing all the species, though. About a thousand of them are undescribed. Um, I'm not really obsessed with the process of new s- describing new species. I'm more interested in fitting those species into genera and into sort of higher level evolutionary yeah. patterns. I'm also advising quarantine agencies and um, overseas bodies about. Mm. Uh, uh, what pests they have, so I do need to know also about the leaf beetles outside Australia. Yeah. So it's not just three thousand; it's a lot more than that. <laughs> so you, yeah, you mentioned that they're feeding on plants, so they're important pests then. Agriculture and, yeah. and forestry, to some extent, yeah. What? But but they're not just pests; they're also uh, uh, potentially beneficial because they're okay. feeding on plants. Therefore, they can feed on weeds. Mm-hmm. And uh, Australia is probably a pioneer mm-hmm. in bringing in uh, beetles that feed on, on weeds, yes. <laughs> most of which have been totally unsuccessful, but, but some, <laughs> some are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a very diffi- difficult process. Yeah, I'm still surprised whenever I hear about re- introductions of things going on. I think there's so many horror stories in the past would be a bit trigger shy. Uh Horror stories in the past because people didn't do their homework and, yeah, yeah. and didn't really care about whether um, the introduction was going to run rampant into something else mm-hmm. these days i think they've gone overboard the other way because they're so concerned that uh, an introduced beetle might feed on a garden plant even though the weed <laughs> it might be destroying all of agriculture they won't introduce the beetle because it's feeding on a garden plant so yeah. i think that's a little too cautious <laughs> so australia's beetle fauna is it particularly diverse or unique australia's Averaging about ten percent of the world's fauna in any group. Okay, so, so the beetles. Yeah, so with the beetles, we've probably got eighty thousand species, seventy eighty thousand species. So we're sort of roughly saying there's eight hundred thousand to a million beetles <laughs> worldwide yeah. species. Species. Very good idea then that you restrict yourself to one little group. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very interested whenever I was talking to scientists about how they end up specializing in a particular group of animals. Mm. You've become you know, the beetle guy. Was this intentional at all? How did this come about? Uh, it was intentional from about the age of 12. Really? But <laughs> before that, I was I wanted to be a fly guy. So you knew from very early on you wanted to be an entomologist, yeah. at least. Wow. Yeah, I, I was very lucky. I had um, 
I had a frustrated scientist as a mother, <laughs> and I and she inherited her entomology books from her father, mm. uh, which were from around 1900. And then I, the other great stroke of luck was I went to a school that had an active natural history society, mm. including a, a boy who was three years older than me who was actively collecting insects. Mm. Uh, and then I had a local museum that was uh, restructuring at mm. the time I, I went to secondary school and wanted volunteers. So I was involved from the age of 11 in mm. um, rehousing the collections of the Elston Museum in Belfast. And so something happened that spooked your interest in beetles around then? Well, it was actually uh, this uh, older boy. He was already... I was keen on flies. And I think I, I think it was something very boyish. I like to catch fl- hoverflies They're very fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, off flower heads, um, just by uh, quickly flicking my hand out. Mm. And then uh, 1968, a book appeared on the British hoverflies, so mm. that was great, and then I could go away and identify them. But then I went when I went to school and I made friends with this older boy, he was already working on flies, so I didn't want to be seen to be copying him. <laughs> So uh, I thought, what's you know, what what else can I do? And mm. and um, parents bought me a book on obscure beetles, and and so it went on from there. It's uh, for anyone listening at home that you know, might want to be an entomologist when they grow up. Um, I was wondering if you tell us a bit about you know your career and how you got to where you are now. I've had a few hiccups. Yeah. Um, <laughs> As but, is normal for a scientist. But I, did, but I did straight sciences. Yep. Uh, I actually never wanted to be an academic. Mm-hmm. So uh, my ambition as an 18-year-old was to be a nature reserve warden okay. and just uh, follow the amateur tradition of collecting insects. Mm. Uh, then I found I'd, I'd been... Um, told that there was basically a job for me in, a, in an Irish nature reserve. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I went for the um, job, I was uh, I, I got an interview, but I was one of, I was the only one out of six who didn't have a degree. Mm. And I didn't get the job. <laughs> so that fired me up. I thought, right, I'm going to get a degree. Great. And I'd done straight science at school. Mm-hmm. Um, so then... Uh, I just contacted various uh, entomologists that I knew and said, "What's? I didn't really want to do a high, high-blown degree. What's the easiest degree I can do <laughs> that's in entomology?" <laughs> so they all said uh, agricultural entomology, mm-hmm. which was actually fantastic because if you do agriculture, you skip all the crappy organisms that live in the bottom of the sea that that, that <laughs> no one ever cares about but get involved in in um, first and second year zoology dissections <laughs> so it, it, you know agriculture zoology um, is very much focused on practical animals mm-hmm. and and uh, you get to learn quite a lot about a few organisms rather than a very little about a lot of organisms and, mm-hmm. and of course insects are important in agriculture. Mm-hmm. I was recommended the particular uh, degree, which was at Newcastle on Tyne, uh, because there were two lecturers who both collected beetles, which right. helped. <laughs> so you had good mentors. So I had good mentors, yep. yep. So you finished your degree, and then... And then I uh, didn't want to do a doctorate. I was going to um, work in the... Uh, the degree fired me up into being interested in agriculture in the developing world. Mm -hmm. So I got recruited to actually work in um, Central America Mm. 
and uh, I was very excited about that. And then the Central American government turned me down because the, because I didn't have a doctorate. <laughs> so then I thought, oh, sod it, I've got to go and get a <laughs> PhD. Yeah. And then, of course, once you get a PhD, you become rather specialised, and it's hard to do the things that you, yeah, yeah, sort of you really wanted you to do. Yeah, for the next yeah, couple of decades. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I but I did um, I did all right with the PhD, and I managed to keep my head above water with postdoctoral fellowships, and mm-hmm. finally, I'm here. Yeah. yeah. So, how, what brought you to Australia then, and to the museum? Well, I came here to do the doctorate. Oh, okay, yeah, great. Basically, uh, my supervisor for honours mm-hmm. had worked with Syro in mm-hmm. Canberra in the 70s, and he said, <clears throat> go to Australia, you'll love it. Um, it's sort of paradise for biologists. <laughs> and uh, Canberra is probably the best place to be based because you're within three or four hours of everything from rainforest to the snow, the desert to mm-hmm. the beach. So I went to ANU in you Canberra. Yes, they were right. Yeah. You fell in love with Australia. And yeah, yep. Been here ever since. Yep. <laughs> and yep. how long have you been at the Australian Museum? I've been now? here 17 years. Okay. Yeah. And so we're, I guess, for people listening at home, we should probably put some sort of a context. So we're sitting in a entomology sort of storage room, I guess, with a lovely chemical a collection there around us. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, with a very strong smell of naphthalene. Which, yes. Yeah, we're trying to phase out, but there's so so much of it in here. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it'll take a while for this smell to be gone from museums. Yeah. <laughs> so you can probably hear our chairs creaking in the background and some noises and stuff. But yeah. being a museum scientist, you get out into the field much. Try, try to. Yeah. The problem with uh, um, collecting any group in Australia is you get so much material mm. that you get rather overwhelmed. So. Yeah. Um, I, but I still collect almost every weekend. I'm still out collecting because that's what I like doing best. Great. And so you're doing lots of work sort of locally or spending much time overseas? Well, I was in Papua New Guinea last November mm-hmm. um, we're training local people in mm-hmm. entomology. And so this is to train them up for identifying pest species, like you're saying? Yes, that pro- the primary concern in someone like Papua New Guinea is um, their main economic assets or mm. crops like coffee mm-hmm. so they need to know immediately when they have a new pest yeah. and, and what it is and what its biology is and how they're going to find someone who can identify it and how they're going to find someone who can find the parasites or yeah. predators that feed on it so, mm-hmm. yeah. so how's all that going are you you have you trained people up or it's an ongoing it's an ongoing process, project yeah. but uh, w- yeah we were training people last November and I'm going out again in May mm-hmm. so is uh, looking into a bit of your research and checking out information on the Australian Museum website, and I would just thought I would go ahead and ask about dung beetle genitals. What's so interesting about dung beetle genitals? Ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I did a project on dung beetles a long time ago, mm-hmm. uh, but before I had published it, I was put on a uh, how to deal with the press uh, two day. Uh, workshop yes but it was real press Mm. and what i didn't realize was everyone else in that course already had a published story that or a story that was just about to appear (laughs) and therefore they had a story yes and i was uh, we were all asked to bring a story i didn't have a story (laughs) but i was interested in applying uh the distribution of flightless dung beetles to the problems of the history of the wet tropics in north queensland Mm mm-hmm so I just made up uh, a statement. I just sort of made up, um, well, uh, dung beetle sex is going to um, 
solve uh, problems of the um, relative value of rainforest in North Queensland. <laughs> and the uh, science editor at the time in the Australian then published it on page three. <laughs> and suddenly, this is without any actual research having been done, <laughs> suddenly my phone was running hot for about three weeks. Yeah. So you're an unwilling expert in... Yeah, the, paper, the, papers, the papers got published about three years later. <laughs> yeah. And so what was that research on? Well, the history of Australia is a history of uh, drying out mm -hmm. and then wetter periods and drying out and wetter periods. So you have a history of rainforests expanding, contracting, expanding, co contracting. And this is why speciation has been occurring whenever a rainforest is isolated. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps those species overlap again when the rainforests touch, and there may be more speciation when rainforests are isolated. It depends on the time period yeah. for the uh, movements of forest. Mm -hmm. So uh, with vertebrates, for example, you've got... Um, verte vertebrates require quite large areas of uh, forest to maintain viable populations. Mm -hmm. So the research that had been done on biogeography of the rainforest in North Queensland had all been on vertebrates. And they couldn't tell you very much about small blocks of forest. And there were, for example, no endemic vertebrates known from the Paluma Range north okay. of Townsville, which is quite a substantial range of rainforest. Yeah. But modelling showed that during the glacial maximum, during the maximum aridity drying out of Australia, that rainforest block had had shrunk to about one kilometre square maximum, which is just too small to maintain a population of a of a vertebrate. Mm. However, there are endemic flightless dung beetles okay. on that range. Yeah. So uh, we sort of realised that flightless dung beetles are going to tell us a lot more about the relative um, uh, relationships of different blocks of forest mm. in North Queensland. The work that needed to be done was to work out the taxonomy and mm. work out the relationships between the species. And then you substitute blocks of forest for the species and, right. and talk about area relationships of the forest. And so that, I guess, is where genitals comes in? Genitals used to separate the species yeah. of, of the dung beetles. Yeah. So, uh, and there's many flightless species of dung beetles yeah. up there. So this is... Um, I think the second podcast in a row where we've ended up talking about genitals. Yeah. And I should probably explain that it's not just a bizarre fascination. They're actually just a, a very important tool in biology, right? Yeah, tool is a good pun. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even mean to do that. <laughs> but, yes, mostly there's a bias towards male genitals. Yeah. But the assumption is that in mating... Uh, each species uh, is probably doing something slightly different. Yeah. With beetles, the uh, male genitalia uh, often evert, and, and in actually spectacularly so in dung beetles. So, mm -hmm. so the the penis, what's called the penis, is a tube, a stiff tube, but inside is like an inverted glove. Oh. And when that inverted glove, sorry, and when that everts. Yeah to form a glove-like shape, each of the lobes of the glove has a different function in the female. Sounds like a glove with lots of fingers, do you mean? So, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so up to four fingers. Okay. And one finger is pumping sperm into the female. Mm -hmm. But the other fingers are uh, scraping rival sperm out of the female. 
Wow. Or they may be, in some species of beetles, in the seed beetles, mm -hmm. they're actually ripping the female so that she can't mate again. Is this, this is pretty normal for insects? It's pretty or? normal for insects, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, the, the tube itself is almost identical, but, yeah, the, yeah. but the shape of the inverted um, lobes is completely different. Yeah. A little yeah. Swiss Army knife going yeah. out. Yeah, it is, yeah, very much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a taxonomy tool, so you can look at it to tell the difference between species that otherwise look pretty much the same, is it? Yes, right? yes, and and the females, um, they tend to just have a, a tube, an inverted sac, an inverted sac mm -hmm. for, the re for the reception of the male genitalia, mm -hmm. but attached to that sac are the egg-laying organ, the ov ovipositor, and also the sperm storage organ. Most, most of the insects I work on certainly have a sperm storage organ. Mm -hmm. And those vary between species as well. Yeah. The sperm storage organ is often rifled because the sperm are, have really long tails. So oh. they're all, they're all twisted up inside the uh, organ. So being a researcher in a museum, one of the benefits of doing research in a museum is having all these collections at your disposal. I mean, what is it about a collection that is so useful to research? Well, I think we taxonomists, the people who are naming species, taxa, uh, are the first step in, in biology. Mm -hmm. We are the ones who decide what a species is. And that decision is based on specimens. Mm -hmm. So museum collections are repositories of those specimens. Yeah. That's, the, that's the first thing. So we have what are called types where someone has, like myself, has, has said, okay, I'm declaring a new species. Yeah. That new species is going to be founded on a typical specimen, which is the holotype. And there's, and there's an enormous jargon. There's a whole book about the, yeah. the funny names so used. It's just one individual that represents yes. so the you, entire species, So it's a type because it's typical. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and normally these days you would provide another uh, another set of similar specimens mm -hmm. uh, so that you could send one or two out to trade with other museums. So, mm -hmm. so that's the type concept. That's number one. Number two is we have enormous amounts of distribution data locked up in these collections as well. Mm -hmm. Not locked up, sorry. So they're, they're <laughs> there in, the, in yes. the collections. So if you want to know the distribution of a butterfly or a wombat or anything in between, mm -hmm. we've probably got a very large amount of the primary data for yeah. for that distribution. That's fine if we're talking about wombats, but if we're talking about beetles that are hard to identify, then we've got the specimens that can be checked mm. because much of the published literature is full of, is has errors. Mm. So um, the fallback is to come back to our collection and have a look and check yeah. was this correctly identified. I guess not only is it recording distribution, but it's also recording things like time. So we can compare across time. time. Yep. Here, much less so than uh, the UK. Mm -hmm. in, in the UK, I was very heavily involved in doing surveys of of uh, different insect groups like ladybirds, um, ground beetles, butterflies, moths, mm -hmm. and and the data in the UK go right back to about. 1800 in collections yeah. so they have a very clear idea of changes in distribution mm -hmm. uh, extinctions increases in numbers yeah. whatever uh, here our data are only now um, approaching that level mm -hmm. 
Um, so in, maybe in 50 years' time, we'll be able to say clearly, oh, this has increased, this has decreased, yeah. and so on. So, yeah, we're, we're getting to that stage. So where do all these specimens come from? Is it just up to you to go out and collect everything? Well, we have large collections donated by amateurs. Great. Um, we're always happy to have more. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have a space problem, but anything that's uh, um, been well curated and... and uh, is something that is of interest to us, mm-hmm. very happy to have. Uh, we do our own collecting, um, we do a bit of uh, swapping with other institutions, mm-hmm. and that's been going on, this museum dates from, what, 1828? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the insect collections probably only date from about 1885, mm-hmm. but still, it's a reasonable length of time. So you mentioned about getting specimens from amateurs, I mean, is that an issue now? I mean, in the past, sort of insect collecting and... Displaying was sort of a popular hobby for the upper class, I guess. Is, oh, it's so very... we've got lots of records from back then. Is it harder to get that information now? I think it's still very popular. Yeah? Yeah. Um, not sure. I'm not seeing it with young people. Mm. Mm, everyone's maybe on their iPod um, <laughs> doing something. But, but uh, yes, the, I, I'm still in touch with a lot of amateurs who, mm-hmm. who uh, have very good collections. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, yes, I'm not, I'm not sure... I'm not sure about the younger generations, um, but but they may be just quietly accumulating. And, uh, well, let, let's let's uh, kick this off. Let's encourage people to start collecting insects. So, if someone wants to start being an amateur insect collector, I think go th- first of all contact the Australian Entomological Society mm-hmm. because that's the main body for Australia. Mm-hmm. They will help. I have to say to your listeners that. Coming here is just a huge eye-opener. In, in, in the British Isles, mm-hmm. one species of endemic beetle, one species of beetle that's not found anywhere else mm-hmm. on the planet. In Australia, it's more than more than two-thirds of the species of beetle are unique to Australia. And that's so if they go, then they've, they's gone. Nowhere else yeah. to get the prize. Yeah. That just to do with sort of being geographically isolated for yes. a long time? Yeah. yeah, and it's a whole continent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's going to have a lot more yeah. stuff. Yes, exactly. So when you're out in the field collecting insects, I imagine you're coming across so many different types. Mm. Is your knowledge just so vast that you immediately know whether something's a new species or not? Or no, is I'm, the process I'm, from that point on? I'm probably forgetting as much as I ever knew. <laughs> the other problem is that most beetles are quite small. Mm. So I'm collecting things hoping that they're new, but mm. not, not really knowing until I get back to the lab and... and look at the genitalia or whatever. So once you've got them back in the lab, how do you then find out what they are or find out whether you've got something new? These days, as I I protest uh, each species, I dissect them Mm -hmm. just to have a quick check. Because you've got all your references to compare it. Yeah, I've got a good reference collection here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so then once, say, you find something new, is this exciting or are beetles just so diverse that finding something new is... Sometimes it's exciting. Yeah. A uh, recent holiday I went on to Jarvis Bay. I found something new mm. um, while my friends were just swimming in the sea. <laughs> um, there was something flowering at the back of the beach, so I thought, mm. oh, have a look at this, something new. Uh, that was unexpected. Other yeah. times I go to a place and I expect to find something new, and, and maybe I do, but it's sort of expected, so mm. big, de- big deal. <laughs> but there are there are many new things Many new undescribed things just yeah. in backyards in suburban Sydney. Yeah. We, we still haven't described all the species in Sydney. It's amazing to think that you can just be out on holiday and stumble across something that's new to science. Yeah. 
yep. together. Yep. <laughs> I was doing a field course with University of New South Wales, mm-hmm. and we found a new genus of beetle, new genus, new species, mm-hmm. on the bushes up there on a thing called cheese tree. And um, I was with my PhD student, and we both came back to my house down in the Illawarra. And she said, oh, you've got the same um, tree in your garden. Have you ever looked at it? <laughs> no, I had. I just never bothered to look at the trees in my own garden. <laughs> so I got out the beating tray and beat it, and there was the same species of new beetle was in my own garden, That's and I hadn't realized. <laughs> <laughs> I wish to just get a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling that you're contributing this thing to mankind. Humankind. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Humankind. Um, Well, it seems warm and fuzzy to me. Uh, It's a little more than warm and fuzzy because it's also... There there are important applied aspects, yeah. But the exploration side is what really excites me. Mm. Just being out there, maybe not even finding new things, but just finding an old friend... Or finding its larvae and rearing them yeah, through yeah. or something. Yep. Fantastic. All right. Well, we should probably wrap things up. So if people want to hear more about your research and the kind of things they're doing, they can jump on the Australian Museum website. Is that right? Yep. Thanks for coming in, Chris. Pleasure. Pleasure. I'd like to thank the Australian Museum Science Festival for helping put this podcast together. You can find out more at australianmuseum.net.au or follow them on Twitter at amscifest. You can see more in situ science at insituscience.com or you can follow us on Twitter with the handle at insituscience. My name is James O'Hanlon. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. 